by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the latest episode of Emerging Markets Decoded, the podcast that tackles the latest trends shaping the world of emerging markets. I'm your host for today, Ariane Ortiz-Bolin, from Moody's Global Emerging Markets Team, coming to you from New York. On today's show, we'll focus on social risk at the different government levels. Emerging markets face social risks related to uneven access to education, housing, health and safety, basic services. Often, weak social services constrain economic and social opportunities, sometimes amplifying inequality or hindering labor dynamics. This can then lead to weak domestic demand, lower consumption, and ultimately create weaker operating environments. The pandemic has highlighted the importance of social safety nets in providing rapid financial support to vulnerable groups. And by by social safety nets, we typically mean social assistance and labor market programs. The availability and effectiveness of social safety nets varies widely among emerging and frontier markets, in contrast with most advanced economies where these tend to be stronger. Now, to discuss social safety nets and how they affect sovereign credit quality, I'm joined by Samar Masiad from our sovereign team in New York. Samar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ariane. A pleasure to be here. Now, Samar, can you tell us why is Moody's interested in social safety nets to begin with? And how does it relate to our assessment of credit risk? Sure. Uh, we, we view social safety nets as one element that reduces uh, social risks and, and political risks. And you recall that we highlighted uh, social pressures and rising political risks and one element that weighs on sovereign credit profiles before even the pandemic. And of course, when the pandemic hit, these issues became, uh, became more pressing. So the experience during the pandemic shows that having in place an, uh, an effective social safety net facilitates crisis response on the part of the government, simply because the, when you have in place the, the information and, and the programs to access vulnerable groups and households, governments are able to deploy support in a timely manner and, and much faster than having to create those programs uh, from scratch. In a crisis time, it helps, uh, especially uh, becomes especially helpful. And in normal times, it it allows government to deploy assistance to those in need and has positive outcomes on uh, income inequality and 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 poverty uh, reduction. So that channel facilitate or reduces uh, social tension, social pressures, and reduces political risk. So it's clear that social safety nets may reduce political and social tensions. While investors may understand this, they may wonder, aren't these costly? So can governments really increase social programs without weakening their credit quality? That is often a a perception that expanding or creating uh, 
social programs does have a fiscal cost. However, we noticed that on average, the, the cost of these programs in the sample we looked at, which focuses on emerging and frontier markets, is on average is around 1.5% of GDP. There are higher spenders, uh, if you will, and the range we noted can be up to 35 or 4% of GDP for some uh, emerging markets, but it can also be as low as 0.5 or less. So in cases where the spending is, uh, you know, is, is effective in, in achieving uh, you know, social uh, goals, meaning reducing poverty and income inequality, um, and is well targeted, then we can see benefits from uh, this spending. So uh, like, like everything, it depends on the quality uh, of spending. It's interesting what you mentioned. So it depends on how effective it is spent, but also it's not that large, at least in terms of GDP. Now, what are the elements that make social safety nets effective in some countries? And in contrast, what elements make them costly or less effective? When we looked at the different uh, countries and what characteristics the social programs or social safety nets has, we typically consider uh, coverage of the programs, whether it covers the, the right in the, the right households and the right people who are in need of uh, of government support, and how targeted is the is the overall spending. Meaning you can have programs that target everybody, like subsidies, for instance, then, then this does not target the most vulnerable. So uh, in cases where the coverage is, is ample, is sufficient of the deserving or needing uh, households, and the amount of spending is targeted towards those uh, individuals or households, then you see positive impact on reducing poverty and income inequality. And that's how we, as we, we, we see the effectiveness of these programs. And then that translates into a reduction in social risks and political risks, as I mentioned earlier. Hmm. Now, can you share with us some examples of countries that do this more effectively and other countries where there is room for improvement? Sure. We also noted that uh, there is a there is a, a, a correlation or or a connection between the the better design or well designed programs with institutional strength. So uh, countries that have a higher degree of institutional strength, and keep in mind that we are talking about about emer even within the emerging market and frontier markets, there is a distinction. Uh, tend to be able to design more effective or better targeted social programs. Um, so on that spectrum, you see, for example, uh, one country we point to is South Africa that has relatively high spending and, co and high coverage, as well as a high targeting uh, of, uh, of vulnerable households. So then you get better outcomes on poverty reduction and income inequality. At the other end of the spectrums are typically countries that have other institutional and maybe fiscal challenges uh, that then the design of these programs and the impact on, on social outcomes is less, is less uh, clear. For example, like uh, I know Tunisia or Bolivia in, in Latin region or Egypt. And there's a lot of countries you will see in the middle ground where uh, this, there is there is maybe room to improve the targeting or improve the coverage, um, and you see a lot of countries in Latin, for example, uh, fall in this uh, in this category. Uh, for example, Mexico and Brazil would be in in the middle ground. Samar, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Ariane. It's a pleasure. Now let's turn to how social risks affect emerging markets' credit quality at the regional and local government level. What kinds of social risks do they face across emerging markets? How do these vary across geographies? 
Demographic pressures, for instance, aren't a key social risk for many emerging markets, but what about income inequality? Higher social risk can weaken productivity, weigh on tax revenue, increase social spending, and constrain policy effectiveness, and can have more significance at the regional and local level than at the national level, where aggregates can mask underlying risks. To discuss this and more, I'm joined by Jennifer Wong from our sub-sovereign team, coming to us from London. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ariane. Great to be here. Now, Jennifer, your report found that RLGs, or regional and local governments in emerging markets, have higher exposure to social risks than those in advanced economies. What drives their exposure to social risks? Mm-hmm. Well, first I'll just say that social considerations are important for both advanced economy and emerging market regional local governments, and they're very important for government credit quality. But when we looked across sectors um, that we rate, we found that emerging market RLGs um, face higher social credit risk and, as you noted, higher than their advanced economy peers. And what this means is that credit pressures from social risks are material and are either affecting credit quality now or is likely to in the future. Now, for governments, when we look at social considerations, we broadly group it into six categories, namely demographics, labor and income, education, housing, health and safety, and access to basic services. And for emerging market RLGs, what's driving this exposure is the more limited access to basic services, inequality, and weaker labor markets, as well as more limited tools to mitigate against these risks. Now, you explained what drives regional and local governments' exposure to social risk. But from a credit perspective, how can these social risks affect credit quality? Yeah, so looking at um, access to basic services, for example, um, this can affect credit quality by weakening RLG growth and finances. And while infrastructure has improved across many emerging markets over the years, Emerging market RLGs still face significant infrastructure needs and infrastructure gaps. And um, strong growth in population and urbanization has also increased demand for services and also necessitated infrastructure upgrades. Now, the impact for RLGs can depend on what they're responsible for, uh, but often RLGs are responsible for providing many of these services, such as water and electricity. Um, but they don't always have the resources to address these needs. And having inadequate infrastructure can hamper productivity and economic growth, which weighs on revenue, such as from taxation. Um, it can also pressure LG spending. They need to spend more to provide these services. And this can influence debt burdens and contingent liability risks. Now, even looking within countries, we can see that access to basic services can vary quite widely. And generally, infrastructure is better in urban areas than in rural areas. Um, These regional inequalities can have implications for credit profiles. So when we look across our rated portfolio, we find that on average, poor RLGs record weaker financial performance even accounting for government transfers. Um, For example, in Russia, uh, poorer regions carry higher debt burdens than their wealthier peers, even though they get a lot of um, funding for infrastructure through central government transfers. Um, And this 
inequality or regional divide can vary across countries and within countries as well. So, for example, in China, uh, the province of Guangdong has a GDP per capita that's three times that of Gansu province. But looking within Guangdong, we see that Shenzhen, a centrally planned city, has a GDP per capita that's almost seven times that of Meijiao City. And these higher levels of poverty, income inequality, and low formal labor force participation can weaken productivity, lower tax revenues, and also increase social spending pressures. Jennifer, you mentioned the differences that can be present within a country, but what about by geographical region? Are there differences that you can share with us between, say, Latin America compared with Africa? Yeah, so when we looked across regions, we noted that health and safety concerns were higher for emerging market RLGs in Latin America and in Africa. But for Latin America uh, RLGs, this was mainly about security. So, for example, in Mexico, um, homicide rates have been fairly high in recent years and have had major implications for municipal, municipal finances especially those that are heavily dependent on industries such as tourism or who need to spend more on policing, for example. Now, um, for African RLGs, it is the, uh, the concern is about both health and safety. Um, for example, in South Africa, uh, regional local governments there during the pandemic faced disruptions to revenue collection, while residents also faced unequal access to healthcare services. And lower collection rates increased bad debts, while rising unemployment affected property tax collection and service charges. Now, why does Moody's think social risk will likely remain high for regional and local governments? And will this have a material impact in their credit ratings? So, Governments do have a variety of tools to mitigate social risks, um, but for emerging market RLGs, they have more limited tools and also face higher exposure to these challenges. So emerging market RLGs generally have smaller and less diverse economies and face more funding constraints, which um, hampers their ability to adjust um, and respond to these risks. And this is amplified for emerging market RLGs because they tend to have less fiscal autonomy and borrowing autonomy than their advanced economy peers. Um, and they're generally more reliant on central government transfers. Um, and these governments also um, may already face fiscal pressures and carry sizable debt and interest burdens, which the pandemic has likely worsened. Now, in terms of how we incorporate that into our ratings, we reflect some of these considerations in our scores for financial flexibility, which considers the ability of an RLG to adjust its revenue and spending to meet its responsibilities and respond to changing circumstances. This constraint and the greater exposure, which will continue to have implications and weigh on credit profiles for emerging market RLGs. Jennifer, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, for those interested in keeping up to speed with our latest views across all emerging markets, you can visit our dedicated website for the very latest research, podcasts, and interactive webinars at em.moody's.io. And you can now also subscribe to Moody's Talks Emerging Markets Decoded on your favorite podcast channels, including Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Please do share with us your thoughts and comments for future episodes. 
Until next time, keep well and thanks for joining us. Thank you.